the night I hear him talk The coldest story ever told Somewhere far along this road He lost his soul To a woman so heartless How could you be so heartless? Oh, how could you be so heartless? How could you be so cold as the winter wind When it breeze yo Just remember that you talking to me Talking to me, yo. I mean, after all the things that we've been through, I mean, after all the things we got into, hey yo, I know what some things that you ain't told me. Hey yo, I did some things, but that's the old me. And now you wanna get me back and you gon' show me. So you walk around like you don't know me. You got a new friend, well, I got homies, but in the end, it's still so lonely. everybody and welcome to Agitator. My name is J. David Osborne and that is Kelby Losack. Today we're going to talk about 1999's Audition, part of Takashi Miike's brilliant 1998 through 2003 run, which also included Itchy the Killer, Gozu, uh, Dead or Alive, pretty much all of his major hits. And for this episode, we have a guest that I'm super stoked to have on. What's up, Jack? How's it going? Hey, I'm really excited to be on too. I'm a big fan of you guys' podcast. It's really cozy. Uh, the uh, well, you both have pleasing voices. You're both like smart and normal, and not too much on Twitter. Uh, and you're very literary. And also, it's nice that the episodes are short because I've blazed through like six of them in the last few days. Oh, well, thank you. That's really that's really nice and surreal to hear because. I've listened to almost all of your show. So we have a weird parasocial relationship. This is the first time we've talked, but I feel like I kind of know you, which is a very not normal thing to say, but that is you what listen it is. To like two, 200 hours of me talking about myself. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that is wow. I don't understand it. how you'd feel like you know me from, you know, being brainwashed right. basically straight. Yeah. Just like the bug and genocide are going straight into your brain. yeah i started off listening to the perfume nationalist as a total lib and by the end of it i was just like i'm never voting for a democrat ever again (laughs) (laughs) that's really great to hear i'm glad that you uh got the most important uh political message there which is just don't vote for democrats Mm -hmm. (laughs) the the culture the tides of culture uh change and the day-to-day political minutiae is like useless to keep up with and probably makes you dumber in the long run. But as long as you know that Democrats make life uh, expensive and less functional. <laughs> it's right. Yeah. Because it's, it's just true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Finally understand my parents just being like normal and never really like my parents were never political people at all. Like, I never even knew what they thought, but they definitely were never voting for a Democrat. (laughs) Yeah. I I get it. Mine are like, you know, really open-minded, sweet, unconventional, sort of hippie-ish people, but they have always just been Republicans, non-conventional Republicans. And part of growing older uh, just means realizing that your parents are right about everything, if they were Republicans. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> I actually have a much better relationship with my dad now because we send Alex Jones articles in like the Gateway Pundit back and forth because he's all into, I mean, his big thing is COVID still. Like he's finding out all the info about secret Chinese machinations and the next thing that's coming down the pipeline. He didn't really get into the Ukraine thing that much. He's pretty he's pretty solidly in the COVID psyop thing. But anyway, we never got along and it was only after I sort of grew up a little bit that I was able to kind of see where he's coming from with a lot of because he's like a military guy, you know? So he's always been uh, very Republican and but also weirdly anti government, which doesn't never made sense to me. Right. Because he with, worked, with he me it started I started listening to Rush Limbaugh because of uh, the introduction to Camille Polly's glittering images, where she uh, talks very favorably about the energy of uh, AM radio, talk radio. And a few years earlier, I had been like screaming at my mother, as a libtard does, uh, for listening to Rush Limbaugh. She'll never let me forget it, but it's such a tragedy that he's gone because that was like, you know, once you actually listen to three hours of rush a day <laughs> you, you understand what's going on rather than um seeing the negative depiction of him uh that was always in the media that was just like he said something racist he said something misogynist but yeah my my mother still really resents that i voted for obama twice i did too everyone did all millennials did i mean it was presented as something else it was a bait and switch it was like uh, you know, racism is over. We get the cool black smoking, uh, cigarette smoking president. And then, you know, the second he was in, that all left. Well, and it, like, I went, used to go to a comic shop and the guy who would hang out there, he and I would talk for hours and hours. And he actually drove to Obama's inauguration and cried. And it was a moment, dude. It was a total vibe. The AM radio thing is interesting because I used to drive from Oklahoma to El Paso to visit my wife's family. And when you back then in 2006 or whatever, they didn't have all these convenient roads that just make it a straight shot. So you had to take a bunch of spooky desert back roads. And the only thing that would work would be AM radio. So I would listen to like Laura Ingram and Bill O'Reilly, and I think Rush Limbaugh was after them, but I would just kind of absorb all this. But like I was coming at it from this uh, sort of seething, angry point of like, listen to these fucking assholes. They're so heartless. They just don't care about people. But then you start to find out that they do care about people. They just don't pretend to care about everybody, which is like the big live yeah. psyop is like, if you don't care about great swaths of human beings you're a piece of shit and i don't and i never have <laughs> i pretended to but yeah. i don't and the the most important text on this itch issue to uh map it all out very clearly is the fountainhead uh which uh, you know in its depiction of liberals and the machinations of the media it's so forward thinking and so applicable to everything today but yeah the it's just the like directness and humor of those conservatives seems so shocking once you've like placed all your eggs in the basket of academic libtardism it's just like this is not how you're supposed to speak but if you have any sense then you know rush would win you over pretty quickly you just could not not be in awe of what a supremely talented broadcaster he was and how warm and positive his vision was overall it was never blackpilling. Yeah, that's the stuff I can't stand at, at the moment is all of the blackpill, doom and gloom, 
or just extremism. I, I'm not freaked out about anything. I'm not, I don't see everything is just getting worse and worse. I'm like the hunger for normalcy is just, is heavy right now of just can everybody just stop pretending and be normal. Yeah. Absolutely. I haven't been able to muster much enthusiasm for Russia or Ukraine because simply because it signaled the abandonment of the COVID plotline, at least for the time being, by libtards. So it just feels like the sun is shining bright outside. No one's wearing a mask. Everybody's having a great time. And I don't care at all whether all of their energies are directed into this uh, Ukraine stuff. They can do whatever they want. And a, a really important thing to remember is that all of this takes place on your phone and once mm -hmm. you put your phone down covid it was different because it was like hentai tentacle rape where you if you had a job that required a mask it you had to literally wear libtardism on your face for two years so that was invasive in a way that even like the trump derangement syndrome years were not but now that that seems to be going away i'm just like hippy dippy live and let live kind yeah, of and it's still it, if you basically if sometimes i'll peek at writer twitter and writers are the absolute worst human beings on the planet but they're still in covid mode i'll just peek sometimes and it'll be somebody with a profile picture with like a i guess a rainbow flag mask like pretending to be in a wheelchair and they're still very upset about their not being mask requirements for i don't know stoker con or something like that but Again, it's like you said, you just turn just, it off. Uh, like, how do you become that person? Like, what track do you take in life? Because everything that I do and say seems very, like, common sense, not a big deal. It just, like, that's how I ended up here, by trusting my instincts. But it's, like, those sorts of people, like the, the writing community, uh, which have mm -hmm. always creeped me out uh just you know at a casual glance walking past at a distance it's like the second you start placing your value in how you can move up in these like corrupt dinosaur establishment institutions like the publishing world then you just surrender your entire soul and it's so distressing because so much of like the love of reading and literature sets you on this path to like the most craven kind of like libtard evil like <laughs> like you know look at the girl who likes reading and so she becomes a librarian libraries are like a hotbed of like libtard evil right now and everything you know once you get the master's mm -hmm. degree in library science you just like spend your time putting anti-racist baby out and uh you know working to uh make it a computer lab for homeless people and like um and like me, like I had no like set career path because there's a chronic family like lack of ambition and kind of like hippy dippy mindset that we all have. Like we're all talented, but like don't really know what to do with it. Um, and so, you know, it took me six years to complete a bachelor's degree in English. I and I was just same. like, I like reading. So I'm just going to become a teacher. And then that didn't work out. So. But yeah, it's like, it, like all these distortions of how, you know, reading can set you on the wrong path. <laughs> it's very strange. I think about those old 18th century advertisements to keep women from reading because they might think that what they're reading is true. And they might have been 
onto something. Those were absolutely true. I remember those. Like I took a Victorian periodicals class uh, with like this professor that I really loved. And there were all of those kinds of like 19th century comics that showed like spinsters sitting by the fire with frazzled hair reading a book and like driven totally insane and that happens less with you know what is officially considered fiction literature than it does with you know fake news media which is also fiction um it's just more through the like news angle now but it's all true women have this weird this weird uh capacity to think that everything they see is real everything they read is real mm-hmm. it's true i don't have anything to add to that yeah that's <laughs> just true that's just true this is the, unless this it's is a sympathetic depiction of a man <laughs> oh true you know? yeah yeah they think well, that's, that's why, like prejudice yeah that's why they're so concerned with making sure that movies and books don't do certain things because to a lot of them there's no separation between a thing happening in a book and it actually occurring so you know you can't even get into the argument of you know the difference between like an authorial voice and the actual beliefs of the author as if even that matters right i mean but that's that's so far down the road that's not even there but you know it kind of just seems like when you look at the censorious um tendencies over the past well, at least in my lifetime, it's always been like Tipper Gore and people like that, like mothers wanting to put the most badass parental advisory sticker on rap albums that they could think of. So yeah, it might actually segue nicely into the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> into the, the eternal feminine. Yeah. Yeah. So audition. Uh, so for, for this conversation, I read the book and rewatched the movie. So there, there are some fun differences between the book and the movie we could talk about. But the movie basically tracks a widower whose wife has been dead for seven years, who is urged by his son to get back out into the dating world. And he mentions this to a friend of his who's kind of a sleazy video producer. And the producer, who's named Yoshikawa, says, why don't we hold an audition for a fake movie? It could be a real movie, but we'll, we'll just... We don't really need a script. We just get the audition rolling. And we can get a bunch of women together where they can write you an essay and send you their headshots and you can pick out the one that you want to date. So the movie, very famously, for the first 45 minutes, is kind of this very slow, kind of pleasant, cozy, romantic comedy. There are funny bits. I guess there are some funny bits in there that uh, slowly begins to change into this very uh, unsettling and disturbing horror film as the woman that our protagonist Aoyama decides to go with is a complete psychopath who was molested as a little girl and has decided to spend her adult life, uh, you know, finding men and cutting their feet off. So that's the plot in miniature, I guess. But Jack, what what is your uh, kind of history with Miike films in particular? So or Audition general, is I mean. actually the only one I've ever seen. Um, oh, okay. And Audition was huge it, with cinephiles in the early 2000s. And 
I was uh, always posting on forums and was part of the like DVD fanaticism, DVD boom of the early 2000s, which was a great, a great time to be a cinephile. It was really fun because like DVD releases were like a new uh, deluxe, lavish kind of thing. But Audition um, was always really acclaimed. It was always spoken of uh, on those like lists of most extreme and disturbing movies. Basically, everyone everyone loved it, and I I quite liked it a lot. Like I owned it at the time. Um, I really uh, enjoyed the tonal shift from the first like hour and a half of melodrama standard soap opera stuff to the final segment of gore and torture. Um, watching audition now, it's hard to parse the initial shock of it. Um, because it was so widely imitated, like basically everything in the two thousands and, you know, 2010s even, to this day, has imitated Audition. Um, like the whole uh, hostile saw, quote-unquote, torture porn genre, which I love. I love all of those movies. Um, those definitely took from the torture and the, the violent scenes, uh, which were kind of unprecedented at the time. And then stuff like uh, Mulholland Drive took the kind of, abrupt narrative shift where the last segment is like uh psychedelic and nonsensical um and then like stuff like hard candy you know is kind of like a dumber like american brained like more explicitly feminist uh kind of revenge thing um but it doesn't seem you can't recapture the shock of it because we've just seen so much of this and so much of this type of violence it's on like network tv now like if you've seen that like hannibal show or like anything the violence on network tv is on this level but it's a really it's a really simple and really well done and beautifully shot movie and i think the best aspect of it is uh the girl's performance which is pretty legendary right and uh I, uh, Sheena, she was primarily a fashion model and this was her, like, this was her biggest role. And then the other only really like notable one would be like Tokyo Gore Police. And I, I think it's a perfect example of a, a thing that like you bring up a lot on Perfume Nationalist of actors are just mannequins. That's kind of, I mean, sounds like the mode that she was in, like where she's coming from like the fashion model world and just like showing up to these one, a really gory, like B comedy type of horror movie. And then this one, like a, a more slow burn tonal shift nightmare where she's in full control of her character the whole time. It's really, yeah, she's incredible. Mm. Another element of the, why this doesn't have the shock that it did at the time is because uh like j horror like japanese horror became such a big mainstream thing in the 2000s like with the ring and the grudge and all of that all of that kind of stems from the popularity of audition yeah for sure i think it was even the same uh production company of audition was the production company of the grudge i want to say the original one right 
Yeah, yeah. Like the success of this movie definitely directly affected. Like all the studios were like, "Oh, we got to push out more of this shit." Same, uh, same actor too, Aoyama, and this is the cop in the Grudge films, who's always like showing up after they've been murdered by the vengeful ghost. Um, yeah. As far as the violence losing its some of its shock, I think I might have been affected by this movie when I saw it. And I have a tendency to revert back to wherever I was. There's kind of the um, the different kinds of time in Greek thought, where there's like every Tuesday is the same Tuesday. It's that kind of verticality of time. So when I watch this, I go right back to being like 16 and Tartan Asia Extreme had this great line of of Japanese movies. I mean, they had all the grudge movies, The Ring. And I remember, you know, taking money that my grandma gave me and going to Sam Goody and buying these DVDs. And uh, I remember this movie fucking me up so much because of the, not just the gore, but the kind of pedophilic undertones of the last quarter of the movie, right? Where her, she's a, you know, seven-year-old girl, uh, with her, you know, her mentor kind of beating off, watching her dance and stuff. Mm. It it disturbed me so profoundly that when I turned it on 15 years later, I, I was just transported right back there. Everything from the the quick shot of the flapping tongue under a table that sort of comes out of nowhere in that nightmare sequence to the needles under the eyes to the uh, kind of legless... A uh, guy who's missing every finger but his ring finger, uh, drinking vomit out of a dog bowl. The vomit is the worst part for me. It worked. Yeah. It all worked for me. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I knew about this movie as being like a horror movie or whatever. And um, I first came to it in the early early Netflix days. I was floating couches a lot, probably eight. 18 around that time i had just i had lost my apartment and i was floating around different different friends houses and this one i was staying with a friend who lived in a tiny ass apartment like uh his room wasn't even big enough to share so i was like kind of in the closet on a sleeping bag and i just this is also the time where i'm like i'm in full tweaker mode like i was a big crackhead piece of shit back then so like the the haunting and disorienting nature of like the last of the movie after even though i knew this was supposed to be a horror movie and it's notorious for its gore and shock and whatever i just fell into it like while watching it on my laptop and in a closet with all the lights off and by that time like by the end of it i was crying like i it 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 really disturbed me (laughs) amazing do you guys think that it's more convincing as a feminist story or a misogynist story of the you know eternal uh destructive feminine okay this is a good question and it's a perfect time to bring in the book the film itself i think was a direct response to some criticisms that Miike was getting at the time, uh, that his movies were misogynistic. This was his 35th movie, and uh, before this one he did Dead or Alive, where uh, Reiji Ishibashi, who's this character actor who's been in 
a lot of his films he has like almost 400 acting credits in japanese movies but he's the um he's the mentor he's the guy who's beaten off uh in dead or alive miki has a scene where that guy plays a yakuza boss who drowns a hooker in a kiddie pool filled with her own shit and that among other like itchy the killer and things like that had, had really given him this kind of reputation for being a misogynist. So I can't help but see this movie as him directly responding to that by making a, yeah, a movie where this woman is very blank and, but also like she's everything that kind of scares guys about women, right? She's very possessive. You can love only me, but then you could get out of that. You could wiggle out of that if you wanted to by the whole idea of having the audition, uh, this kind of auction block where women come and kind of strip for him and write personal essays as being, you know, what everything that's gross about men, right? Seeing women as this kind of pieces of meat that they can buy and sell as they choose. But I I think it it resonates more to me as a kind of misogynistic movie, I think. Yeah. I agree. The audition, uh, the audition part doesn't seem particularly like mean spirited or anything in terms of what they're doing. You know, like because if you go to auditions anyway, chances are you're not going to get the part. Like <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. it's uh, pretty standard stuff if you're in show business. But um, I think it work works really well uh, if you read it as about. Uh, men's anxiety about losing themselves to a woman when they get married because she Mm -hmm. you know vampires out your essence she takes your personality she hobbles you cuts off your feet um like you know if you've had uh friends that get into a relationship and their entire personality changes because they're so obsessed with some girl the appeal of whom you cannot see like i've seen this over and over again um so yeah it's kind of a a sort of uh stepford wives for men kind of like anxiety about feminine influence thing yeah and in the book basically the book basically the the ending sequence that that takes a little bit longer in the movie is maybe the last 15 pages of the book most of the book is this guy introducing asami to all of his friends and each one of them being like there's something very wrong with her and then him becoming furious with them and you know you're just jealous because I'm in love I haven't been with a woman in seven years like how how could you be this way to me and the book is also much more overt with the fact that there's something wrong with her there are some comically kind of over-the-top scenes where the two of them will be having dinner and at one point a guy rolls in on a wheelchair missing both of his feet and he sees Asami and like turns pale and then starts wheeling away as fast as he can. And uh, the the music director, who in the film has just been missing for a year, uh, Yoshikawa basically tells the protagonist, uh, oh yeah, he's dead. Like somebody sawed off his feet and he had a heart attack while his feet were being sawed off. So it's much more overt in the book. But kind of back to your point, I mean, the book itself is basically like, the, the audition scene is much more... Uh, misogynistic and they're basically like 
every woman that shows up, they're like, look at this dumb whore. And, and they all strip and they all talk about like, you know, having sex with the guys or whatever. And then, uh, yeah, it really does get that vibe down though of when your homie starts seeing a chick and you, you're trying to explain to him that she's bipolar and he's like, bro, you're just a hater. You don't, she you don't gets know rid of all like, of his stuff. Her. Yeah. Um, <laughs> every, every remnant, everything that represents his old personality, every like interest he had on his own, she, you know, takes it all to goodwill. The first part of it, I all, you know, I've always thought that I liked the melodrama half of it more just because I like, I keep saying the word cozy, but it is cozy. I, you know, there's just a kind of textural pleasure in seeing like uh, clean, good looking Japanese men smoking Marlboro lights in a bar in 1999 and all of these like nice restaurants and stuff. Um, the pedophilia stuff. I feel like, you know, it would probably more be more effective as a kind of like feminist fable if that uh, was not so like fairy tale, like cartoonish. Like there's no like the the guy that molested her is just like this uh, one dimensionally evil stock character that's just like brandishing like, you know, those hot irons and, you know, cackling like a witch. Um, but this like um critical disparagement that Mikay underwent for like being misogynist was that from Japan like does Japan have a a like no, critical no. establishment that cares way, about any uh, yeah i didn't think so run in new york uh right after it had gotten buzz at rotterdam uh made more money for the movie than its entire japanese run uh Mikay's looked at i think as a very workmanlike filmmaker and really hit or miss with japanese audiences but no, the misogyny talk was all the the early uh, aughts blogs. They had a lot of things to say about this. The um, all important early aughts blogs. Yes, indeed. Like laying the, the groundwork for the the what we have now, the abominable film criticism we have now. That's just pointing out how what's wrong with stuff in terms of representation. Right, right. But yeah, no, no. I don't think anybody in ja- in Japan. Uh, really could care one way or the other because it's just that's one thing that interests me so much about japanese movies in general is the alienness of the culture and trying to understand i mean like what the the book has a lot to say about japanese materialism right and it actually has a bit to say about nationalism uh there's a particular passage where the author is basically saying that up to a certain point you know after the a-bomb dropped and japan went through its struggles in the 50s they had ultimately eliminated poverty and everybody could eat. And then he says, and then all of a sudden you could get French wine glasses, right? Or I think he makes, he says something about like German pipe organs and stuff like that. And he says, that's when the Japanese got a taste for things, for being able to buy things. And there's a strong uh, nationalistic kind of isolationist, through line in the book that uh, is echoed a little bit in the movie. There are some broad statements made in the movie about the Japanese in general. But anyway, that's just what I think makes these movies and this podcast so interesting is that it's just, it's trying to figure out 
ultimately, one of the big questions I have on this podcast is, what's the deal with Japan? What's going oh, on with yeah. these people? Oh, yeah. And having that kind of genuine curiosity about it as, like, you know, just some, like, white trash person in Texas like me, uh, like, approaching it honestly in that way, like, I and attempting to understand the culture on its own merits rather than, you know, universally applied values is endlessly interesting. And the way that uh, in the 20th century after Japan was bombed, they became like America worshiping, like the happiest capitalists that have ever lived who like do capitalism better than anyone else. And they sublimated all this anxiety about the bombing into, um, movies about monsters blowing up cities and you know like anime about like terrible beast like gods like tentacle raping people like it's just so like all their like anxieties and emotions are so like neatly compartmentalized and i love that aspect of it yeah a lot of these terrible like things were like translated into and transmutated into really bizarre art and uh it's just a fascinating statement on the human endurance like the endurance of man to keep like basically get attempted to be wiped out twice and be like man uh the only way i can even like sort of articulate what what i'm feeling right now is like a giant monster movie so let's make let's make a hundred of those it's also interesting to me that the most popular japanese exports that like americans and westerners love seem to be stuff that the japanese themselves like don't really care about or are like actively embarrassed about Mm -hmm. they think nothing of mishima and Mishima is so, like, huge and popular now, but, like, they're just kind of... Mishima is just this kind of, like, embarrassing thing for them. Uh, but Westerners are always, like, the noble J- Japanese, you know, <laughs> bodybuilder is so cool. Like, uh, but, like, have y'all seen Shin Godzilla? No. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, so I love, love, love Shin Godzilla. It's the Godzilla movie that the um, Hideki Anno the Neon Genesis Evangelion guy made a few years ago. And it's basically a remake of like one episode of Evangelion with uh, a really disgusting Godzilla instead of one of the angels. Um, But that was like this huge, like, you know, kind of equivalent of Academy Award winning like blockbuster, like Titanic blockbuster for them. And, you can see why it it has this like strangeness about it that doesn't really like translate. It always seems alien and it always seems foreign, but like stuff like that is what they're like really proud of. It seems. And then stuff like audition, like they just don't really care about. I'm totally like making up in my head what Japanese people think, but that's what. <laughs> that's what uh, no, yeah. You know yeah. What? No, that's what we do here. We speak. Yeah. 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 I, gonna, yeah. I was going to say that. And I wish people on podcasts would do that more often. I wish that people just said big, bold things and then let the chips fall where they may. It's what I'm trying to do more of, you know, I'm just like, you know, so used to equivocating and saying, now I know this isn't true for everybody. It's like, no, fuck that. Japanese people are strange. 
and their movies are weird and they don't, they don't like the things that we like. And that's becomes an interesting portal through which you can talk about stuff, you know? Um, in terms of the kind of Shin Godzilla, um, the things that Japanese people do really well in different cultures, I'm really fascinated right now with going back through the, the Metal Gear Solid games just because I think that it's such a cool example of everything that Japan thinks is neat about American, you know, tactical ops spy culture, right? But it's all Oh, yes, and they're right. They're right. Everything that they like about America, they're so, like, correct about, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And they do it better. For example. Their, like, fantasy vision of it is better than the real thing. Much like... um, like uh, old school Western Orientalism and like American Chinese food, stuff like that is like a better, more appealing, like fantasy than the real thing. Right. Cause you romanticize, romanticize something to where instead of it just being the materials that you're working with or like whatever, there, there's some level of distance and admiration that like when you bring it into your own backyard and try to make something out of it it's i don't know it, it like transcends its original whatever made it cool where it started out as it, it gets all this other stuff like mixed in with it that that just and plus the like that core ingredient of the like fascination it registers you can see you like you can always feel when something is genuine when there's some kind of passion behind something and it's not just like yeah, this is what we do it's like i really i thought this was cool and so i made my own spy game i don't know anything about america but this shit's awesome it's like wow yeah that is cool and like look at what american video games turned into like american video games are now the most like gender goblin like unappealing like sandbox <laughs> just like i see the commercials for them on tubi and i'm just this looks awful and like all of that libido and all of the genuine like um weirdness and inventiveness and kind of autism that is makes like something like metal gear solid appealing or like the best japanese video games appealing um that's all coming from over there because they don't have these stupid made up puritan liberal inhibitions that have been built up in the american mind also americans uh individuality has been uh hijacked to perform the biggest psyop that we've experienced of late which is the privileging of lived experience which just doesn't matter it's just genuinely not important to making art at all but it became the only thing that's important to making art in american popular culture totally and that infects everything now it's so pervasive like one wing of that that i have particular contempt for is the way that people recite that they hate reading fiction and they don't they don't think fiction is good which Mm -hmm. has been this kind of like received opinion uh for the last maybe like 15 years i hear it a lot from gen xers and older millennials Uh, and it's clearly something that people haven't really thought about it's just became one of those like cultural uh touchstones that everyone kind of learned through mimesis uh indicated that they were in a higher class of like smart people but fiction teaches you so much more about the world and i think that it exercises your brain 
so much more. Um, and I want this like return to fiction and total invention and artifice. And like, right. As you said, David, this like ridiculous idea that um, you don't have permission to invent things unless they're your experience. And by the way, all the like minorities and stuff claiming, claiming these experiences and receiving these astroturf affirmative action awards their experiences are fake too <laughs> you know well, oh, 100%, that clearly I, you know 100 percent. i experienced that firsthand all the fucking time because i'm always told i'm not allowed tell, to tell them about like, the tell them about the hood thing tell them about the hood thing oh, was a good story. oh yeah no i got i got dragged i don't know canceled before canceled was a thing or something on online a while back by somebody uh, claiming to be from every hood in america like literally she was like i'm from compton and i'm from <laughs> uh the, the all fucking, of them all of them i'm from all of them i was like bitch because i said uh i said hood and some kind of casual and talking about something and uh she was mad that i that i was using that terminology and i was like i'm not uh i'm not even talking about black people like i'm i'm from the hood and it, it yeah it, it spiraled into this big thing of uh online democrat black people being mad at me for a few seconds that i just did not give a fuck about because it is all it's all made up it's like you don't have a right to write about this you don't have a right to write and, about and this these, and, and and this person is like the picture of the of like the model you'd see on a geico ad or something oh, like that right. you know what i mean and yeah and she she's clearly affluent and i you know i think she was like a lawyer or something but you know, very wealthy, very, the, the books that she writes are not appealing at all. But it was like, that was one of those uh, red pill moments for me too, where I was like, well, Kelby, I've seen where and how Kelby lives. It's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. I've, I've been, oh man, I was uh, tweaked out the motherfucker first time I met David. <laughs> yeah that's beautiful yeah he came he came to visit me on a bus it was cool oh midnight cowboy mm-hmm. one of the <laughs> one of the earliest psyops of woke liberalism um before black lives matter and before all the rest around 2012 2013 it was cultural appropriation and this notion that you know, they don't explicitly say it's just white people are not allowed to borrow anything from any other culture, but that's what they mean. Everyone else can borrow anything from any culture. Uh, black women can dye their hair blonde. Uh, you know, that's, they're they're lower on the, the perceived victimhood and privilege hierarchy, so they can take whatever they want. Um, but this idea of cultural appropriation that for no reason at all, just kind of like in a vacuum... Uh, you are suddenly not allowed to honestly draw inspiration from any other race or culture, which is this kind of casual cross-pollination of everything uh, is how good art is produced. And it's also how like a functional multicultural society is created, like what we had in the 90s and 2000s where racism was basically solved. (laughs) Because then Barack Hussein Obama had not deliberately revived it. But, like, there's just no backing behind that. Like, the only flimsy sort of uh, argument they can make is that white people 
historically have been taking money from those minorities who should uh, get, you know, money for their own experiences and they should be the only ones to, you know, trans people should be the only ones to play trans people, all of this stuff. But that's ridiculous. We've seen uh, 10 years of all of these minorities receiving full credit and being able to do whatever they want. And all of their output is uh, totally mediocre compared to uh, what white people do with it. <laughs> so that, that's the unpleasant fact of it. Um, but yeah, the, the notion of cultural appropriation is just ridiculous. That was one of the earliest red pills for me. It's like uh, just reject the entire hypothesis. Like, no, I don't. I don't buy into this. There's no, it's like, it's like the argument early on, like, uh, you know, the first time I saw liberals really go too far to the point of abstraction where they made no sense is when they started saying, um, having black friends does not mean you're racist, which is patently ridiculous because if you care enough for someone of another race to consider them a friend, you're not a problem. <laughs> you're not like, that's some, yeah. Yeah, that's I've always I've said that to so many people. They've been like, oh, here he goes, you know, bringing out the fact like, you know, I'm at my mom's house right now. Right. Stepdad's black. Uh, you know, my best friend's black. Uh, besides Kelby, of course. Um, he's a, he's kind he's a kind I'm, of black. I'm black, actually. Yeah, you're yeah, honorary. He's, he says he says the N word enough to be black, at least. Mm -hmm. But um and, you know, I'd say that, oh, here he goes, drag, you know, married to a Mexican, been around Mexicans most of my adult life. It's like, yeah, but that doesn't matter. And I'm always like, yes, it does. Are you kidding me? <laughs> of course it does. That's yeah. Yeah. When it became saying. about like your private thoughts, like it no longer became about your like treatment, outward treatment of other people. It was all about like entering your brain, like the genocyber bug and uh, ensuring that your brain is like lobotomized to the point that you no longer privately observe any anything that they consider inappropriate yeah and it's kind of like the i have this neighbor who i take um i take walks a lot with the kid around the neighborhood and we've got these neighbors down the road who like next door to each other there's one interracial gay couple and then there's this old dude with a basset hound and a giant confederate flag hanging from his uh his boat uh carport and I see them talking to each other all the time. I, I've seen the old man carry the newspaper from the road up to the porch for his neighbor. I've seen them chatting at the fence. And everything online teaches you that, well, the old man with the Confederate flag waving is like this hateable bigot. But I'm like, I don't, his aesthetic choices aren't translating to how he feels about the black gay man living next door to him. Like they're always chatting it up. Yeah, I can relate since I have a Confederate flag uh, beach towel that I have in my bathroom at all times that I have to carefully move out of selfies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, the the age old trope of the like racist old man next door with the shotgun and the Confederate flag, that's something entirely invented by Jews in Hollywood. <laughs> that, you know, that's that's like uh, like one of the oldest oldest stupidest most inaccurate tropes of this of like the southerner who is you know texas chainsaw massacre like actually like unhinged and evil because uh, like everybody treats each other decently publicly it's so rare to have any kind of like sort of like morality based or political confrontation in public and the only time it's ever happened to me was from a liberal 
uh, like the only oh, time yeah. that a liberal like started something and like said like genuinely, it's weird to use the word and actually mean it that like homophobic like taunting like it was from a fucking mask covidian liberal. Yeah, I I said this story before on the podcast, but I'll repeat it because it's evergreen. But when I was younger and I was in high school, early college years, this was like the early 2000s, my friend group was the most diverse it has ever been in my life, right? And there are people from that friend group who I'm still friends with, but everything from, you know, you know, black people, brown people, trans people, gay people, like everybody was part of this kind of weird punk group and we'd all meet at this coffee shop in a small town in Oklahoma and we'd get, you know, traveling punk bands to come through and just sort of have a good time. And we all shit talked each other because that was how we showed friendship, which is also a personality quirk that has not allowed me to fit in very well with a kind of modern liberalism because they're very, very sensitive people. They don't like jokes. But my point is, is that, you know, we had genuine love for each other that I have been trying to get back to ever since just a feeling of camaraderie with people but this was back when you know as you say it Jack right racism was largely solved where our differences were not uh, made into wrong think uh, where you were actually just able to be friends with whoever you wanted to be friends with and it didn't matter right like I in, in that period of time I knew some people who might not have known that they were Republicans because that's an ideological category that just doesn't occur to you when your whole goal is to get high and fucked up and rock out, right? But like, I don't know. It was just beautiful and I miss it. And I'm just sort of tired of this gray, everything tasting like, it's like, it's like these people are all on SSRIs and they've shaped the world in their image, you know? Yeah. And well, a big problem when you try to maintain those old uh pre-2015 friendships like that is that a short and easy path to success acclaim attention potentially money is provided for all of these minorities and it's really hard for them to choose you over that path uh it's really really tough for them to resist it so you can have all sorts of different friends, but right now the climate is such that if somebody is a member of a minority group and trans people are especially prone to this because they do these like massive image transformations every like six months because they believe they can alter reality. It's that the, the second the anyone who believes in libtardism whatsoever has a diff disagreement with you or is like disturbed or inconvenienced by you in some way, they revert to the cozy arms of the narrative that's been presented to them because it's just easy. I mean, it's, it's harder being a, one of us and it's easy to simply, at least in the short term, have everything good, handed to you for playing by the rules even if you know them to not be true mm -hmm. that was my experience with uh my little cancellation in the writing world it was just bald, bald face opportunism on the parts of the people who did it you know 
a lot of it was really a backstabby moment for me probably one of the bigger my biggest red pills have probably been covid and that experience it's just those two things where like all these people who i thought were my friends were you know suddenly calling me a white supremacist where you know at that point i hadn't even really said anything besides that yeah. i liked uh listening to alex jones and joe rogan that was my that was my bridge too far and it's like you know and it's it's people who are friends of mine but it's people who have you know, made a career off of, you know, pretending to be Mexican, you know? Um, it takes being burned by a lot of them to truly internalize the lesson. Um, because, you know, I, my sort of, like, I became a pariah pretty early on, and all of my friends dumped me in, like, 2015, 2016. So I had a lot of time in, you know, relative isolation not answering to any libtards as these massive social and cultural changes were taking place um but most people had a slower go of it and they understandably tried to maintain those old friendships with people from the before times and my un unpleasant advice that no one wants to hear is like if somebody is fundamentally deep down a libtard and you're not you really can't get close to them because they will the power differential is such that they will betray you at some point mm -hmm. um they will slum it with you for a while you'll be their like uh conservative friend that they can like express their their uh, reservations about liberalism and political correctness that they can't say to their like real important like high status liberal friends so they'll have fun doing that for a while but at some point it's just going to get too much for them and covid especially was a breaking point for a lot of it where people internalized that narrative to such a degree that they simply had to uh, and, and they're encouraged by the New York Times and everything to purge everyone conservative from their life explicitly every year. There's the articles at Thanksgiving. It's your duty to uh, alienate all of your family members who aren't reflecting our narrative. Um, but the, yeah, there's there's the inevitable disappointment every single time. And you can't like hang out with them while keeping it totally apolitical because the po politics infects everything you could potentially talk about, especially COVID, you know? Do you know how, how many times people hit me up privately in the DMs or with a phone call? And they were like, you know, I'm really, I'm glad that you're posting some of these things that you're posting. And they would say like, I'm just too, I'm too fucking scared to do that. And when I tell you, like the rage that I feel deep down <laughs> in that I'm like, oh, okay, cool. So you didn't oh, have my I hate back, that too. and you you left me you left me hanging out to dry. But you're gonna tell me in private, you know how bold you think I am. Fuck off. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That makes me want to do like audition style torture revenge stuff to those people. The <laughs> condescending ones who agree with you and know better are worse than the total like cult NPC brainwashed ones. Because they, they, they do that all the time to me, too, where they'll uh, send me a message about, oh, yeah, I think it's so good that you're so brave and you've been speaking out about this for so long. 
Um, but I wouldn't dare to publicly associate with you. I don't care about being friends with anyone who doesn't want to publicly associate with me. Fuck off. (laughs) You're, you're a failure. You're weak. You have no morals. Uh, I do not have any sympathy for you for, uh, taking the easiest path and uh, not having the intellectual fortitude to figure out before this that something was wrong. And you know what's funny, too, is that maybe this sounds overly optimistic, but I've maintained in many conversations and publicly that the, the pendulum on this eventually will swing back because the the hubris of the libtard program is that it's always going to try to do things too quickly and burn itself out. It's a real Icarus-type situation, right? And these things do move back and forth. And I think that in anywhere from five to ten years, we won't see a full-on kind of return to, say, where we were in the late 90s, early 2000s. But it'll... It'll balance out. You know, there will be enough communities. um, Maybe that's the wrong word. There will be enough places for people like us that uh, I think people who stay on the the Lib Island are going to be kind of looking out of their little pod, chewing on their bug tacos and just wishing, you know, wishing they had abandoned ship a little bit sooner. Oh, it's already happening. I mean, these like really? BuzzFeed and Daily Beast uh, hit pieces that they do on this scene, they're really like promotional pieces because they make it look really cool. And it's like definitely a case of um, bitter, sour grapes, uh, insta- like uh, nerds who have worked their way up through the right channels and these dying institutions and they recognize that there's a vitality and an energy and something artistic happening uh, across the ravine and so they have to write about it in this like plausibly deniable condemnatory tone um but it's just evident that it's jealousy and they recognize that something real is happening there and you're already seeing kind of like gentle anti-woke themes enter tv shows and movies now like i'm seeing more and more of it where they just okay there's been the last five six years of total um insulated propaganda with no self-awareness that doesn't relate to the outside world as any viewer observes it whatsoever um i think they're simply realizing that that's not sustainable and not profitable And the annoying part about these paradigm shifts uh, where uh, intellectually weak, cowardly people um, are suddenly informed that it's okay to speak the truth and speak common sense after they risk nothing, uh, nothing anymore to do that, um, is that if you were one of the ones who was doing it all along, you never get the credit. You're still demonized and... And people still have this natural revulsion towards anyone who uh, will confidently speak their mind, despite the encroaching um, prison and orthodoxy of liberalism or whatever. Like they, they still have that resentment of like, 
well, not everyone's like you. Like, I've always got that. Not everyone's like you, Jack. Not everyone is brave like you. You have to consider other people. <laughs> you know, like the whole quick time. Quick answer, though. Quick answer, though. No, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> what about others? What about the things you say harming others? Or Tyler, Tyler the Creator. That classic Tyler tweet. You know? How are you going to get cyberbullied on the internet? Just close your eyes. It's your problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, the the aversion to confidence too is so odd to me. Like um I was listening to you talk about on the uh, the last episode you did with Brendan about uh people considering you unapproachable and that that like the confidence that you know that you exhume is like that's what makes me want to have conversations with you and like other people like who have that autonomy and that like that confidence to just speak in their in their truth to just be who they are I'm like that's that sounds like an interesting person to me I don't know why that that would be a put off well thank you I appreciate that and I'm attracted to uh people like that as well it's just like common sense and it's how the world operates to me but for the past half decade uh people who know that there's something deeply wrong going on in society and that they should do something about it um there's always especially on the more like cowardly like anonymous right-wing guys there's always this like you know it's immoral to speak out publicly or attribute anything to my real identity because then they would harm my family and my friends. Um, and it's like, well, someone has to do it. Like, sorry. I mean, mm -hmm. and it makes total sense that all of those guys who were like most strident and vocal in like 2016, they all ended up becoming like Biden supporting horseshoe theory, right wing libtards. Um, Wait, what? I didn't see this happen. Oh yeah. All the like alt-right guys from the like, 2016 all the like real like troll like anonymous ones they all like galaxy brained themselves into uh basically being democrats because they they hated trump for like not being anti-semitic and <laughs> then they just horseshoe theoried around to uh shilling joe biden in the last election and that kind of inner cowardice comes out in ways like this um but I don't know. So the, I just so kind the of anti-Semites like, went to the to the Biden. So Democrats are yeah, like Richard Spencer was is a just Biden. That's right. Democrat. I uh, I've seen that. That's true, yep. and that's um, that is a that was very strange to me. But he always struck me as a fucking moron, just yeah. like a, a a total tool. He was on uh, like Duncan Trussell's podcast at one point or something. I thought that was just a oh he's I, so he's such a drag. He's just just a strange man. Um, How do you manage to make racism boring? <laughs> <laughs> like we've, we've had so much, uh, especially in America, we've had decades experience making it funny. And, yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> he makes it like reading like uh, an encyc like a dictionary or something like the most boring kind of like just awful, you know, and I don't even know what he stands for. He's also, you know, as everyone knows, a fed and some kind of like, operative um but i think i've always just like had faith that i think other people can tell 
when you sort of are letting the guiding hand of truth direct you they can sense it um Mm -hmm. and it all works out in the end i'm fundamentally really optimistic so (laughs) yeah i am too i am too yeah i feel like it'll all come out in the wash and it's kind of like you said i'm noticing this with covid where a lot of people who either clammed up or sometimes even really hopped on the total covid retard train are now about where i was at the beginning of the pandemic right they're not quite quite as based as i got but they'll get there but it's kind of like you said like to them i'm still a retard like i'm still like a conspiracy theorist it's like they can't these people they have no sense of deep time past a week right so they're these eternal just you know beautiful spring children who are just now stepping baby deer like into the sunlight and whatever is in front of them is what's true <laughs> you know what i mean so like they don't have an ability to be like oh wait a minute i remember david talking about that like 6 months ago there is no 6 months ago there is no there's only the eternal present kind of this weird almost a uh, arconic perversion of a of like samsara or something you know like an eternal buddhist like always living in the moment that's been corrupted to this sort of just i don't know ultimate consumer who's able to follow whatever plot line is put in front of them goldfish in a bowl and that's deliberate i mean that was a deliberate uh effort with all of the covid stuff was to create um uh highly superstitious uh, uneducated, instantly programmable uh, consumer where their only uh, access to the outside world and to reality is filtered through designated authorities and comes to them on their phone. Uh, they don't go out. They don't publicly gather. They don't go to restaurants. Like, I saw all of this, like, larger st- structural reorganization aspect of it you know, the virus itself is real, of course, it feels synthetic, but it's real. But the how sinister cabals were taking advantage of this to reorganize society to create a stupid, weak and conformist and easily programmable population. That was evident to me really early on, because I mean, observing the way that covid would go away and then they would make up a new strain and like any time it happened three times where you know i could observe it in the workplace where people had loosened up they were living life normally again they didn't care so much about the masks and then they get the message on their phone oh you're wearing the mask again seeing that three times was so uh enlightening and so disturbing (laughs) but that's that's how they want it to be with everything but the only information you get is what is sent to you on your phone and everything else is under this uh expanding umbrella of like wrong think of you know made up things like white supremacy and uh you know this imaginary idea that there's like you know ku klux klan and underground Mm -hmm. networks of racists like Mm you just i have so little sympathy for anyone who 
didn't get it. (laughs) But I'm unlikable. I'm an unlikable bad person because I have so little empathy for idiots. (laughs) Yeah, no. Empathy for idiots needs to be tossed out the window. Empathy for idiots who want me dead. (laughs) Right. Do y'all ever think it would be easier to just take like a drill and just make a quick hole in your frontal lobe and just become one of them? No, that's the thing about me is, uh, you know, fundamentally, I could not do it. I could not do that. And I don't want to because my entire like my my concept of my self-worth is based around like being true to myself in a way. So that kind of like like uh, mindless conformity has really never appealed to me on a fundamental level. Mm hmm that's been my entire life uh erica and my wife and i were actually talking about that on the drive up uh to my parents this morning where uh she mentioned it it being funny like the phases that i went through as a teenager were kind of these like sort of aesthetically gay like you know painting my nails and like wearing weird uh faggoty haircuts and stuff (laughs) and like um but it was an act of rebellion and autonomy at the time. It wasn't like, and, and that's always been the case for, I've never cared. Like I don't even have that in my brain to fit in. Like I, it, it, it's mind numbing trying to understand these people, but uh, yeah, the quick, the quick solution is, isn't to conform. It's just to like, not, think about it which is not give a fuck not of any sympathy for them you can understand these people if you if you've ever worked in retail i used to work at kirkland's i worked there for four years (laughs) and i one time became a key holder at kirkland's that's as far as i got in the chain right but the girls who worked kind of above me had this mindset of you know of moving up the chain in kirkland's and you know what by the way i do want to say that where i'm at now uh, becoming like a boss of a Kirkland's, it, there are worse things you could do with your life for sure. Uh, but at the time, I just I couldn't figure out why anybody would want to do that. Right? I wanted to write books and get paid for it, which is again funny at this point. But um, you can see the kind of uh, the mindset, right, that most libs have now in that sort of middle management uh, type of person, right? Where there are these rules, they don't have to make any sense. You know, uh, district is coming next month so we got to make sure that all the sachets are you know flowered out just so and got to make sure all the g clay prints of the pig jumping into the lake are on the wall you know it's you just the, the rules exist because they exist and this is what you do yeah i never moved up into management positions for that reason as well because i simply like didn't want to because i didn't want to be available off the clock and have to take this stupid thing more seriously for like a you know barely matters like pay increase and like all the girls around me were always like ah, you know moving up quickly in the in the company and you know they have to be on call every hour of every day for this <laughs> i'm just not like practical in that way of like wanting to ascend to a management position i just don't and i've never like work has always just been a means to an end a means to a paycheck for me and i 
have never been able to like spiritually surrender i've always had like healthy boundaries around what i'm doing and my capacity to pretend that it matters uh and you know very deeply for a typically female manager um but yeah uh, same, same thing with me <laughs> it's a very gen x mindset mm-hmm. and the managers i mean my very first job at the levi's store like i saw the type of person that became a manager and it was just like this like bug dude and all he talked about was his big screen tv and he had like no no sense of awareness or like humor about what he did at all it was just the most literal kind of like hamster wheel like running this goddamn levi's store is the most important thing that's ever happened <laughs> you know, like... mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah one of my managers was this gay dude kevin who loves star trek and would just always talk about star trek him and his boyfriend would watch star trek all day and then I had this uh, this manager who was, like, in her 40s or 50s, and she was just bitter about the world. Like, she kind of just hated everything, you know? And then I had this other manager who was really strict and really focused on, you know, moving up in the company. But she had big boobs, so it was okay. That was fine. She could say whatever right. she wanted. I'm simple. Uh, all right guys any final thoughts oh sorry kelby did you have something my bad i i did and then you're go for it the the boob thing derailed me though i forgot (laughs) (laughs) you started thinking about boobs and it's just it's just what happens the brain short circuits i get it dude it's all what we're talking about though is like the being able to function in a society versus a community and I don't think any of us are society types. No. Yeah. yeah. There, there's too there, many rules. There's always just been something about me, like a sort of spiritual non-compliance. Like I'm, I'm an extremely reliable employee, always like show up, never call in sick. But there's this inward spiritual submission that is evidently not there. And no matter how much I try to, like, present myself as the most, like, boring and conformist person ever, whenever I get a job, they will, within a couple of weeks, remark on how, like, strange and funny and creative something that I did. (laughs) You know, like, like, even, like, my shift log notes, like, I'll just think nothing of it and just write something. And then they'll come back the next day and, and be like, wow, Jack, you really write funny shift log notes. You are so, like, out there. And I wrote, no- I look at it and I wrote nothing. It's just, like, yeah, yeah. I depicted reality, but there's mm-hmm. just not this this submission there. So they know that it's a problem. <laughs> they can sense that it's a pro- that I'm going to be a problem in terms of, like, getting what they want. Oh yeah, my my managers for every job that I've had, I've been the kind of person who is really liked by managers, even though I don't listen to them, and hated by all my fellow employees because I don't listen to the managers, right? And a lot of my working life was spent with uh, like coworkers desperately trying to prove to upper management that I'm a piece of shit who should be fired, and the upper management just being like, he's weird, he's he's just a fun he's just a fun guy. 
But um, I guess that's where I am now, actually. It's like a bunch of people like trying desperately to prove that I'm evil, and it's it's just not sticking. Oh yeah, and there's also the resentment that develops when like all the customers or all the guests or all the residents really like you. Like my last mm-hmm. job was like this. They all, all the people who lived in the condo like loved me, <laughs> and mm-hmm. then the the management, uh, you know who they liked a lot less grew to really resent that and uh you know yeah if you're too popular those people get really mad mm-hmm. and it becomes a, a billy bud type <laughs> <laughs> scenario it's yeah. oh, funny well uh do you guys have any kind of final thoughts about audition before we wrap up um mainly just like this was a nostalgia trip because it this movie loomed so large in early 2000s dvd culture um and i hadn't thought about it in a long time but it really struck me how deeply influential it was on so many different wavelengths um and uh yeah this movie really kind of set off the extreme intellectual horror trend that we've been under for the last like quarter century in many ways yeah yeah it it is a prime example of why cultural appropriation is crucial to great art um both in its influence and the way that it came to be as well because Mike and several of the best eastern directors are constantly observing western and European uh, art and taking what they think is cool and adapting the same way that we do with Eastern cinema and art. And I, I just think that's beautiful. And I think that's the, one of the biggest messages of the show is that we're taking back the word and it's, it's a good thing. Absolutely. All right. Excellent. Well, Jack, thanks so much. Your podcast is my favorite. So everybody who's listening to this, who doesn't already listen to the Perfume Nationalist, go listen to that. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you very oh, much. Oh, thank you. Please yeah, come The pleasure back. is mine. Really enjoyed it. And I'll talk to you all on Wednesday once again. Yeah. Looking forward to it. <laughs> Hell yeah.